When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Where are all the aliens, and what happens if we ever find them? Specifically, what happens to my Christian faith if we discover aliens? Now, in case you haven't noticed, aliens are back. Aliens have never really been out of the popular discussion, but the topic has waxed and waned for years and years and years. And right now, the alien conversation is waxing. Now, I bet many of you have UFO stories. I mean, I personally have seen what I think were uh, UFOs on at least three different occasions and never by myself. So I saw one with my mom. I saw two more with, with friends who also thought they saw UFOs. I'm sure a lot of you have similar stories. But like, like me, I bet a lot of you have just kind of got on with your life. Right, yeah, maybe there's uh, some kind of aliens out there, but I still have to go study, I still have to go eat, I still got to do stuff. So yeah, that was weird, but whatever. Recently though, this this conversation has moved from, yeah, I mean, maybe there are aliens, to when will these aliens more fully reveal themselves to us? When will we get incontrovertible evidence of them? And And so at least in the circles I run in and the people I listen to, the conversation has gone from... I don't really believe in them, or I might to, when are they going to reveal themselves? When, when are they going to show us more? They exist, and when are they going to let us know for sure? I think this big shift in our collective credulity, you know, our, our ability to believe something is credible, I think this shift has largely been due to the Joe Rogan experience. Yeah, like Joe Rogan's podcast has probably done more to shift our perspective than anything else, at least on, on UFOs. Another big contributing factor, at least lately, has been this recent government release of documents on UFOs, uh, which probably would have set the internet on fire if if we weren't already dealing with a billion things right now. But in these documents, we found this language of off-world vehicles not made on Earth, which is just vague enough to include vehicles maybe made in a space station, and maybe that's what they're getting at. But immediately we all think aliens, right? Like that means aliens, obviously. But this is still a live question. Are there really aliens out there? And if there are, where are they? How come they haven't made their existence plain to us yet? Like, why is this still a question? Why why aren't we all just saying, oh, yeah, you know, we know the aliens and my neighbor Bob is an alien. Why don't we know that yet? And this brings us to the Fermi paradox. The Fermi paradox can be boiled down to the title of theoretical physicist Stephen Webb's book, If the Universe is Teeming with Aliens, Where Is Everybody? Now, if we're going to talk about the Fermi Paradox, we have to talk about Enrico Fermi. This guy has, like, everything named after him. He's just a a beast in physics, in science. 
Stephen Webb recounts just a couple of his accolades in his book. He says, Fermi was the first to propose a realistic model for explaining the origin of the high-energy particles that bombard Earth from space. This work was honored by the naming of NASA's satellite mission for investigating cosmic rays, the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope. Indeed, Fermi's scientific achievements were so numerous that the Fermi Space Telescope is only the latest of a variety of things named after him. He got Fermilab in Batavia, Illinois, which is one of the world's leading centers for particle physics, the element with the atomic number 100, which was first synthesized in 1952 in a hydrogen bomb explosion, is actually called fermium. The typical length scale in nuclear physics, 10 to the negative 15 m, is called the Fermi. And 8103 Fermi is a main belt asteroid. And Fermi is also a large crater on the far side of the moon. And several members of the Enrico Fermi Institute at Chicago University have even gone on to win Nobel Prizes. So this dude is awesome. He's crazy. I love uh, I love reading his biography in this book, uh, especially because I'm from Illinois. I know about the the Fermi Lab. We I grew up. That was part of my childhood was going to Fermi Lab. Fermi is also huge in our development of nu- nuclear physics. And Webb recounts that on December second, nineteen forty two, in a makeshift laboratory constructed in a squash court. Under the west stands of the University of Chicago Stadium, Fermi's group successfully achieved the first self-sustaining nuclear reaction. The reactor, or pile, consisted of slugs of purified uranium, about six tons in all, arranged within a matrix of graphite. The graphite slowed the neutrons, enabling them to cause further fission and maintain the chain reaction. Control rods made of cadmium, which is a strong neutron absorber, controlled the rate of the chain reaction. The pile went critical at 2.20 p.m., and the first test was run for 28 minutes, which I know that's all scientific and stuff, but that's insane. They just did this on a squash court. That's like the plot from the Spider-Man movie where he's fighting Dr. Octopus and he makes a sun. Like, how did they know that the whole world wouldn't just catch on fire? The atmosphere wouldn't just burn up and kill us all. It's so nuts to think about. But Fermi went on to be uh, integral in the Manhattan Project and helped develop the first atomic bomb, which, this one's just for free, used fission. And fission is the separating of an atom. You're you're splitting an atom, right? We all know that part. And then what we have now with hydrogen bombs is fusion, which I guess uses a fission reaction in order to make the fusion happen, where they fuse two elements together. And apparently, that kind of bomb is a thousand times more powerful than the bombs that the United States dropped on Japan, which is just absolutely terrifying. All right, but but back to it here. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Fermi Labs because I grew up in the western suburbs of Illinois, the western suburbs of Chicago, and field trips to Fermi Lab were like the highlight of my whole year growing up. We would take field trips and we go look at the bison. Now here's a, here's another free fact for you guys. We have we have bison. We don't have buffalo. We always talk about the buffalo, the Great Plains, and the buffalo. No, no, we have American bison. Let's be proud of that. According to nationalzoo.edu, though the terms are often used interchangeably, buffalo and bison are distinct animals. Old world true buffalo, cape buffalo and, and like water buffalo, they're native to Africa and Asia, but bison are found in North America and Europe. So let's just, let's let's work on that. We got bison. It's, let's own it and be proud of it. So why did Fermilab have bison? 
Growing up, my teachers always told us it was for conservation. They were helping right the wrongs of the early settlers who, maybe not that early, but once we got out to Illinois, which was considered the West back then, you know, they're just killing buffalo wantonly, just driving trains through huge herds and destroying them. And so it's really nice to think, you know, Fermilab is doing their part to bring the bison back. Yeah, that sounds great. Except one of my friends works at Fermilab, and I asked him about this. I was like, you know, um, growing up, this is a really big deal to us. What do you think about the bison? Man? What, 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 isn't that cool that they're doing that? And he said, well, you know, the reason they, they first got bison was because the founder of Fermilab said they wanted to be the, the frontier of particle physics. That, that means that the bison are a mascot. They're the frontier, right? And so here's our mascot, the bison. They, he even told me they used to eat bison burgers back in the day. So this was not a, a conservation thing. He said they, they sell the babies. They get the, I don't think they're intentionally breeding them. I think the, the sow or whatever gets pregnant and they just sell off the babies. So sorry to anyone who grew up in the West Burbs. Super uh, deflating for us. We all thought that Batavia was going to be ground zero for repopulating the Great Plains with bison. But I, I don't think so, actually. But let's get back to it. Sorry, I keep going off. This lab, oh, nope, we got one more thing. Okay, so Fermilab was also, apparently, I've heard this from several people, Fermilab is actually the inspiration for the show Stranger Things. You know, it's like this weird government lab. I don't think Fermilab is government, but it's this weird lab in a small town in, you know, kind of rural Midwest, and they're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And I guess people used to think that way about Fermilab. Back in the 80s, they thought it was a scary place and they're doing weird stuff with dimensions and, and all this kind of stuff. So I thought that was another little interesting tidbit for you. But let's get back to the Fermi paradox. Now, throughout this podcast series, we've considered two famous paradoxes so far. We've looked at the omnipotence paradox or the paradox of the stone. That was uh, when, we, when we considered the question, could God make a dog too big for him to walk? And then the other paradox we've looked at is the liar paradox, where someone says the sentence that I'm now saying is a lie. And so when we consider those paradoxes, we took James Anderson's definition of paradox from his book, Paradox in Christian Theology. And just to recount that, Anderson says that a paradox is synonymous with an apparent contradiction. He goes on to explain that a paradox thus amounts to a set of claims which, taken in conjunction, appear to be logically inconsistent. And then finally, he notes that according to this definition, paradoxicality, which is a fun word, paradoxicality does not entail logical inconsistency per se, but merely the appearance of logical inconsistency. And then Stephen Webb explains that a paradox arises when you begin with a set of seemingly self-evident premises and then deduce a conclusion that undermines them. And then I thought, just to, just to round it all out, let's go with a def definition from Mark Sainsbury, who literally wrote the book on paradoxes. Every philosopher will point you to this book. He says, this is what I understand by a paradox, an apparently unacceptable conclusion derived from apparently acceptable reasoning from apparently acceptable premises. Premises, premises, one of the two. He goes on to say that a Appearances have to deceive, since the acceptable cannot lead by acceptable steps to the unacceptable. So generally, we have a choice. Either the conclusion is not really 
unacceptable, or else the starting point or the reasoning has some non-obvious flaw. And that's from his, his uh, third edition of his book, Paradoxes. So now uh, let's go to Fermi questions, because the Fermi paradox is another in a long series of what have come to be known as Fermi questions. So I guess Fermi would just bombard his students with random questions to help to see if he could help them develop the kind of mind that he had, because this dude was a, a actual genius. And so he thought, I'm just going to throw questions at my students and just make them develop the same kind of reasoning patterns that I have. So I just want to quote at length from Stephen Webb. Webb says, Fermi's colleagues were in awe of him for his uncanny ability to see straight to the heart of a physical problem and describe it in simple terms. They called him the Pope because he seemed infallible. Almost as impressive was the way he estimated the magnitude of an answer, often by doing complex calculations in his head. Fermi tried to inculcate this faculty in his students. He would demand of them, without warning, answers to seemingly unanswerable questions. How many grains of sand are there in the world's beaches? How far can a crow fly without stopping? How many atoms of Caesar's last breath do you inhale with each lungful of air? Such Fermi questions, as they are now known, required students to draw upon their understandings of the world and their everyday experience and make rough approximations, rather than rely on bookwork or prior knowledge. The archetypal Fermi question is one he asked his American students. How many piano tuners are there in Chicago? We can derive an informed estimate as opposed to an uninformed guess by reasoning as follows. First, suppose that Chicago has a population of 3 million people. Webb says he, he hasn't checked an almanac to see whether this is correct, but making explicit estimates in the absence of certain knowledge is the whole point of the exercise. Chicago is a big city, but not the biggest in America, so we can be confident that the estimate is unlikely to be an error by more than a factor of two. Since we have explicitly stated our assumption, we can revisit the calculation at a later date and revise the answer in light of improved data. Second, assume that families rather than individuals own pianos and ignore those pianos belonging to institutions such as schools, universities, or orchestras. Third, if we assume that a typical family contains five members, then our estimate is that there are 600,000 families in Chicago. We know that not every family owns a piano. Our fourth assumption is that one family in 20 owns a piano. We thus estimate there are 30,000 pianos in Chicago. Now ask the question, how many tunings would 30,000 pianos require in one year? Our fifth assumption is that a typical piano will require tuning once per year. So 30,000 piano tunings take place in Chicago each year. Assumption six, a piano tuner can tune two pianos per day and works on 200 days in a year. An individual piano tuner therefore tunes 400 instruments in one year. In order to accommodate the total number of tunings required, Chicago must be home to 30,000 divided by 400, which equals 75 piano tuners. We want an estimate, not a precise figure, so finally we round this number up to an even 100. So that's the kind of thing that, that Fermi would, would put on his students. Just toss out this crazy question, which is a Fermi question, and then they were expected to reason inductively to a rough approximation which I think is pretty awesome. It's, it's wild. I'm glad I didn't have professors who did that. I hate math, but it's really great. This brings us to the Fermi paradox. And people have said that the Fermi paradox actually didn't come from Fermi. It was someone else at a later date, or it was, it was over here, it was over there. 
Webb says that it was actually individually discovered at least three times, but that one of those times was in fact Fermi. So again, I'm going to quote from Webb at length here. Webb recounts that Fermi was at Los Alamos in the summer of 1950. One day he was chatting with Edward Teller and Herbert York as they walked over to Fuller Lodge for lunch. Their topic was the recent spate of flying saucer observations. Now Webb goes on to explain that the, the topic of their conversation was this really funny cartoon which made a connection between all these UFO sightings and the disappearance of a bunch of trash cans. And the cartoon showed a bunch of aliens uh, leaving their saucer back on their home planet with, with a bunch of trash cans in their hand. So back to Webb, he says that Fermi remarked wryly that Dunn's cartoon was a reasonable theory because it accounted for two distinct phenomena, the disappearance of trash cans and the reports of flying saucers. After Fermi's joke, there followed a serious discussion about whether flying saucers could exceed the speed of light. Fermi asked Teller what he thought of the probability, uh, what the probability might be of obtaining evidence for superluminal travel by 1960. Fermi said that Teller's estimate of 1 in a million was too low because Fermi thought it was more like 1 in 10. The four of them sat down to lunch and their discussion turned to more mundane topics. Then, in the middle of the conversation and out of the clear blue, Fermi asked, where is everybody? And then his lunch partners, Teller and York, they both knew exactly what he was talking about. And thus, the Fermi paradox was born. Because given the, the kind of way that Fermi thinks, he's looking at all these different planets and he's saying, well, there's this many planets in the solar system. Uh, there's, there's this many planets in the, in the galaxy. Maybe we can estimate this many in the universe. There's got to be some, some habitable ones. So if we say this many are habitable, this many, blah, 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 going over all this math scientific stuff that I don't know what I'm talking about. There should be this many aliens, and they should be more advanced than us because, given his naturalistic assumptions, they should have evolved much earlier than we did based on the, the size of the sun and stuff like that. Why haven't they contacted us yet? Where are all the aliens? I think it's so hilarious that this was a lunchtime story. But the universe should be teeming with aliens, and we should have been contacted by them by now. So why the silence? Where is everybody. The paradox went on to be formulated and formalized and motivated by two key premises, the Drake equation and the principle of mediocrity. Now the Drake equation was developed by Frank Drake and it's really complex but it's I'm going to try and break it down because it's not so bad. The Drake equation goes like this n equals r apostrophe f of p n of e f of 1 f of I F of C times L. So that let's just let's go over it because it's not really that bad. N is the number of civil civilizations in our galaxy with which communication might be possible. R apostrophe is the average rate of star formation in our galaxy. F of P is the fraction of those stars that have planets. N of E is the average number of planets that can potentially support life per star that has planets. F1 is the fraction of planets that could support life that actually develop life at some point. F of I is the fraction of planets with life that actually go on to develop intelligent life, which are civilizations. And then F of C is the fraction of civilizations that develop a technology that releases detectable signs of their existence into space. And then finally, L is the length of time for which civilizations release detectable signals into space. So you can see it's it's gotten very technical and it's probably 
uh, the, the same kind of formulation that was going on, the same kind of formula that was going on in Fermi's head because the guy was a genius. So in that sense, I think Frank Drake has done Fermi a service here. And then secondly, there's the principle of mediocrity, which just says there's nothing special about Earth or our solar system. Because if there were something special about us, then there would be no motivation for the Fermi paradox at all. Yeah, obviously we're special. Why aren't, haven't aliens contact us? Because they don't live in our special place in the universe. Earth is the Goldilocks planet, and it totally makes sense that we're the only intelligent life forms in the whole galaxy or universe. So the principle of mediocrity is important to motivate the Fermi paradox. Now, there are a ton of answers, solutions, uh, hypotheses, and thought experiments which go along with the Fermi paradox. Stephen Webb has argued that answers to the question, where is everybody, meaning aliens, fall into one of three classes. Class one, extraterrestrial civilizations exist and are here among us, or at least have been here to visit us. Class two, extraterrestrial civilizations exist, but for some reason we've not yet discovered them or had contact with them and we don't have evidence of their existence. And then class three, extraterrestrial civilizations do not exist, and humankind is alone in the universe, or at least in our galaxy. Okay, so there's uh, the subtitle for Webb's book is 75 Solutions to the Fermi Paradox in the Problem of Extraterrestrial Life. So he goes over 75 different solutions, but he says they can be categorized into these three categories, right? So they exist, and they have visited us, or they're among us right now. Two, they do exist, but they haven't visited us, or we um, haven't discovered them yet. We don't know about them, but they do exist. And then three, no, we're the only things that are intelligent in this world, in this uh, universe, and we're the only ones who exist. So now I want to transition to class one answers. Like, what if class one is true? What if aliens do exist? and they have contacted us, or they live amongst us right now. Like, what if, what if aliens exist? What does that do to us, to our belief systems? What if they're here or have been here, and we can prove it? What then? Well, the number of people who would affirm a class one type answer seems to be growing like we talked about in the opening, and for a lot of good reasons. In 2017, Marco Rubio told the Department of, of Defense that he wants to report on UFOs, and since then, more attention has been given to, to UFOs in the public arena. Like I said, Joe Rogan and uh, his podcast has done a tremendous job of increasing our, uh, our credulity in aliens. He's had Bob Lazar on, who it's really interesting, actually. He is someone who said that he's worked at Area 51, that he's worked on reverse engineering a UFO in order to understand it so that we could build it uh, ourselves, that there's this weird anti-gravity component that allows them to do all the weird turns that we see them do in UFO videos. Uh, someone else mentioned that uh, his last name, it looks like Bob Laser, which would be a, a really funny made-up name. So they say, ah, oh, it's probably not his real name, right? And a lot of weird stuff that the government has done to Bob Lazar before. Uh, they've arrest, erased his records, uh, his school records, his PhD, all that kind of stuff. It's insane. So go go listen to Bob Lazar and Joe Rogan. I think he's been on once or twice. He's at least once. Uh, and then you'll remember from last year, there was that Storm Area 51 Facebook event or group. It said, let's see them aliens. 
And that was last September, September 20th, I think, like 2019. And... The memes actually from that were so fantastic. They started off so, so great. And then they became so, so depraved, so terrible. You guys really ruined that one. But then also on Joe Rogan, there's been Commander David Fravor and his Tic Tac story where this is like this Tic Tac UFO that he was following and it, it realized he was being followed and the UFO took off. And it's it's a really crazy encounter from 2004. So go check that one out as well. But there's a lot of people who think that the aliens are here. And so I want to talk about the existence of aliens and the Christian faith. Like what happens to Christian theology if we were to discover legit intelligent aliens? So I have a friend who is a Christian apologist, super sharp dude, and he's really bothered by this. He's like, well, you know, we're we're the Imago Dei. We're made in the image of God. So now there's like this Imago alien out there like that. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem Like there should be other intelligent beings out there in the universe, which are not us. And I, I catch that. I feel that intuition a little bit. You know, it seems like there's something wrong there. We're supposed to be, you know, the, the, the smart ones, right? We're in God's image. We're supposed to care for the earth and for other animals. But then immediately I think of angels and demons, right? We see in Genesis three that Satan is crafty. He's craftier than every other animal. Um, that the the Hebrew word there, I think is, is wise. I think it might be Hakam, but I'm not sure. Um, I know it's crafty because the context there shows that he's, he's tricking Eve. So there already exists another being who's not a human, who's smarter than us, who's not us. So why should we be so upset if we find an intelligent life form out there that's smarter than us, smarter than us because they've developed technology that allows them to travel, you know, untold numbers of miles to get to us. Look, why should that bother us, though? We, are, we have that right away in the Bible. Three chapters in, we see we're not the only intelligent life forms in the world. And there's other ones, evil ones even, who are smarter than us, who want to hurt us. So I think initially, like, that, that's not that big of a deal for Christian theology, just that there's other smart beings out there. I mean, back in the late 30s and early 40s, C.S. Lewis talked about the possibility of image bearers existing on other planets. He called them Hanau. And so, you know, humans are Hanau, and these other image bearers on Mars are also Hanau. And he plays off of Plato's theory of the soul. Plato separates uh, the soul into three parts, the appetite, the spirit, and reason. And so Lewis gave characters to each one of those divisions of the soul. So he has the rasa, which are like the the spirit. They love, they write poetry. There's the fifiltrigi, and uh, these kind of are the appetitive. They are, uh, they they work hard. I'm not sure. Maybe maybe that's right. Uh, maybe the fifiltrigi are the spirit and the rasa are the appetitive. I don't know. You read the book and let me know. But then obviously reason is uh, corresponds to the Saroni or the, the Sorns. They're like these really tall, uh, floaty kind of creatures. And they, they don't like poetry and stuff like that. They like to just think. And so Lewis is saying, hey, look, maybe there's other life out there. And obviously it's it's fiction, but he's broaching the possibility that there's other life out there and they're image bearers of God, but they image God in different ways. Whereas we image God through all three of those parts of the soul being together in one image bearer in man, we can reason, we can uh, emote, we can have emotions and we can do things, we can work. 
And then he separates those aspects in the Hrasa uh, and the Saroni and the Fifiltrigi. The Fifiltrigi like to build stuff. The Hrasa like to write poems and be really kind of earthy. And then the Saroni love to do mathematics and engage the mind. So Christian theologians have already been thinking about this. It's, it's, it shouldn't take us by surprise. But then again, you know, what about the atonement? You know, so Christians believe that Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross here, like 2020 years ago, something around there. What's the deal for aliens then? Did, did Christ's sacrifice here also count towards them? Well, like Lewis talks about in his space trilogy, maybe they're unfallen creatures. He goes over that aspect in the second book in his space trilogy, Paralandra, where his main character is sent off to Venus and he stops the fall from happening. It's happening there again. Satan's trying to tempt the new Eve kind of lady, the green lady, and in Ransom stops it from happening. And so maybe that's the case. Maybe we're the only planet that's fallen. That's why he calls Earth, C.S. Lewis calls Earth the silent planet. We've fallen. We have sinned and we don't communicate with the rest of the planets anymore. We're silent in that in that way. So maybe that's the case. Maybe we're the only ones who needed atonement. And so Jesus came here and he made atonement for us, but he didn't need to make atonement from, uh, for aliens from Alpha Centauri because they perfectly obeyed God's will. You know, that's one possibility. Another possibility, sticking with C.S. Lewis, is from his Chronicles of Nar- Narnia, where Aslan is, you know, he's the Narnian Jesus, basically. In that kind of world where animals can talk, Lewis makes the point that he would come as a giant lion who can talk, right? Because it's kind of like this cartoony, whimsical world. Jesus Jesus could come as a lion. And so perhaps our atonement on earth was for us. Jesus became an image bearer like us, the ones who fell here. And perhaps he can make atonement for other uh, aliens in the way they've fallen. And so that's another one that incarnation and atonement happen on various planets that fall, that fall into sin, that that need atonement for their sin. So actually the answer is, is in Lewis in both cases, whether they're fallen or whether they're unfallen. But what about like, what about this idea of panspermia? Panspermia or directed panspermia was an idea first proposed by Francis Crick and Leslie Orgel, Orgel or Gel, something like that in 1973. So panspermia is the idea that life was seeded, pan, all, sperm, sperma, spermia, uh, seed, right? So like this all seeding that life happened on earth because a comet hit us and seeded the whole planet with life forms, which then evolved into what we have now. Directed panspermia is the idea that maybe aliens are the ones who threw that asteroid with with uh, intelligent life or with, with biological life on it, which could then evolve. So with, with this idea of panspermia, if the aliens came down and told us, hey, you know what, actually, there's this thing called directed panspermia and we've been doing it to you guys and you're like our little zoo project or, you know, whatever it is, we're harvesting you guys. What What's the deal with that? Would that negate then the creation story that Christians believe? Well, n- not really, because that's just a secondary means that God has used to seed this planet for life. So it says, in the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis, and then he created man in his image. Well, you know, some Christians think that theistic evolution is the way that God did that. And then this would just be adding another step into the theistic evolutionary uh, schema. 
that before God directed evolution here, he directed these aliens to launch a asteroid or whatever it is. It doesn't have to be an asteroid, but to seed Earth with the uh, the necessary components of biological life, which could then evolve into what we have now. I don't I don't personally believe that, but if the aliens came and said that, then that's how we could account for that. You know, God ordains the ends and the means. And so perhaps the means that he's ordained, which, you know, I don't really think, but perhaps the means that he's ordained is using aliens to get the biological life started on Earth. Another another point is what about the theistic arguments? In philosophy of religion, there's been tons and tons of theistic arguments which argue for God's existence. Well, I think that if they're ex- if they're successful apart from the existence of aliens, then they remain successful with the addition of aliens. Like if we can use reason to prove God's existence, then we can still prove God's existence without aliens. We still have to have creation ex nihilo, right? So we can still ask, you know, if aliens are our creators, then who created the aliens? Unless you're saying that the aliens are like a necessary being, which we think God is, if you think there's some necessary being that's an alien who exists necessarily, meaning like there's no way he could have, this alien, he, she, it, zer, whatever, could have not existed, then it's a necessary being. You're just taking all the content out of the out of the concept of alien and you're putting in the attributes of God. You're just making God and calling him an alien. So I think that the theistic arguments, they remain unscathed. We still need a creation account. We still need a creator for the aliens. Otherwise, we get this infinite regress of finite contingent beings who don't exist necessarily, like meaning they, they could have not existed all the way back. And then we don't have a real creation story. So even if aliens seeded this earth, we still need a creator of the aliens. Well, someone seeded that planet that they came from. Well, someone seeded that all the way back. Well, you still have personality the whole way. We still need an intentional agent intending on doing that. You still need creation from nothing. And so that doesn't disprove the existence of God. We still need a necessary being who's ase, who's of themselves. The buck stops with God. Well, what about alien governance? You know, what if we are in this zoo project and the aliens are cultivating us and guiding us and the aliens are the one who rigged the election for this person or that person? Well, again, that, that just it's just another step in God's providence then. You know, we Christians do believe some of this is going on, at least with angels. You read in the Bible that, you know, I think it's Michael the archangel is battling with Satan over the body of uh, Moses because Satan probably wants to use it for terrible, nefarious ends and Michael's not about to let that happen. So there's this spiritual realm that's happening right now with angels and demons fighting that we don't see. But why not add an, an extra layer to that? Okay, so now there's aliens involved. But it, it's still within the purview of God's providential control. And then again, we have this problem of, of authority and revelation. So let's say the aliens come down and they say, hey, there is no God, dude. Like, we're way smarter than you guys. We figured this out in our physics way long ago. You guys are dumb. There is no God. So now this question of authority that we wrestle with in philosophy of religion, it, it just pops up here again. Like, do we believe what the aliens say when they say there is no God? Do we just accept their testimony apart from the arguments that have compelled us either one way or the other all along? Well, what if they came down and said, oh, wait, you guys are still debating the existence of God? I thought you guys were further along. Obviously, there's a God. Why are you so dumb? Are you guys unable to see the stars from Earth? Like, is there no stars up in your sky? 
is surely one of your philosophers has discussed the starry skies above and the moral law within, right? You know what, Tom? We're we're leaving the planet. This these guys are too dumb. What if the aliens came down and said there was a god? Would you trust them then? Like if you were an atheist or if you were an agnostic, you were unconvinced by the evidence that we have now, would you just trust the authority of an intelligent being from somewhere else? Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't, but it doesn't mean that we just trust them carte blanche that just whatever they say goes. We still have to reason with them. We still have to consider what they're saying, use reason, use argument, use evidence to consider whether they're lying to us or not or whether they're mistaken. And maybe we've discovered something they haven't. Like if if they came from a different planet and they didn't, let's say Plato's view of man and the soul is true, maybe they didn't have the rational component. Well, then how would they make these things? I don't know. Maybe God helped them discover uh, a different element, which helps them uh, travel through uh, like magnets or whatever, right? So I don't know. I'm just saying, even though they're smarter than us, maybe they come down, we still have to test their word. We have to see if it has the ring of truth. We have to use our reason in order to think through what they're saying. So that problem of authority is still there. We'd, we'd still have to trust or not trust their testimony based on evidence and reason and personal intuition and our prior commitments and our prior probabilities that we bring to analyzing facts and stats. We have to use logic. So it's not just what this alien say goes. So wrapping this all up, do I think there are aliens out there? Well, I lean towards no, I think, but just slightly. You know, I, I have no idea. I think the existence of aliens is perfectly compatible with the Christian faith, and I think the Bible is pretty silent on the existence or lack thereof. We don't get a whole ton about distant galaxies in the Bible. Could God, who's the storytelling God, who does have a whole other layer of reality in the spiritual realm between, you know, these battles between angels and demons going on, could a God who loves stories like that, who made us all with our own individual story, who he alone is is able to see all of those, could that kind of God be telling a story on Alpha Centauri right now? Yeah, he could. Like, that would be, I think that would be perfectly reasonable. A God who loves stories could have a bunch of stories going on right now. But also, you know, if we're the only story in the whole galaxy, I, I think that's reasonable too. So I don't, I'm not really swayed one way or the other. So I think it's compatible, right? I think it's compatible that there are aliens out there and that the Christian faith is true. But I'm not super persuaded. I don't know. The The stuff about the UFOs is pretty wild. I recommend you guys go and listen to the UFO stuff on Joe Rogan's podcast because it's pretty trippy actually. But if it turns out to be the case that they come down tomorrow and they say, hey, we are aliens, we've been here the whole time, blah, 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 panspermia, directed panspermia, all that stuff, I don't think that messes with our Christian faith that much at all. So I'm willing to be wrong here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, whether you think they exist, whether you think the existence of of aliens debunks Christianity, fits with Christianity. Let me know, because obviously this is something that I'm still thinking through myself. Well, we could talk about this way more, and perhaps someday we will, but for now, that's going to have to do it. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. They need to hear about aliens and Christianity as well. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. Mm -hmm.